Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking through the scriptures to Daniel. And we pray now that as this is your living and active word, you'll give us open ears and soft hearts to hear you speak afresh to us too. In Jesus' name. Amen. I've started each of these recent sermons this month by looking at one of the Reformation characters um, to kind of get us thinking about that period. And tonight, Thomas Cranmer, he was catapulted, really, from being a, a fairly obscure Cambridge don to being the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, really because Henry VIII worked out he might be useful to him in creating theological reasons for his divorce, his first divorce from Catherine of Aragon. Uh, More on that later at the seminar. But as archbishop, he was converted very early in his time to the Lutheran biblical understanding of the gospel, that we're made right with God through faith alone, through what Christ has done alone. And he had this fascinating time, the next 15 years or so, under Henry VIII, of on one hand wanting to take forward the, the, the Reformation, returning the church to the Bible, to the gospel, but on the other having this king to whom he was responsible, whose main preoccupation was with his marriages, his politics, his family heir line, and also had a passing dabbling interest in religion, in faith, and who wavered between Protestant and Catholic. And so a very difficult political time for Cranmer. Uh, Then Henry died, and perhaps Cranmer felt, well, this in some ways was an answer to prayer, because the next king, young King Edward, had a group of Um, governors over him who were convinced Lutherans, Protestants, and that was a time to take the Reformation in England forward, to change the prayer book and bring in uh, new biblical ways of doing church and so on. But within six years, Edward died. And the next monarch was his Catholic big sister, Mary, who really put the Reformation into radical, serious reverse. And Cranmer, along with many others, were put to death under her. And here is Daniel in exile in Babylon, rather like Cranmer, rather like us today perhaps, thinking, um, I know that you're on the throne, Lord, I know that you're king of kings, we just sung about that, and I believe that your kingdom will come as we pray for it, Uh, but it just seems like in the world I live in, it's two steps forward and one step back all the time. I'm praying your kingdom come, but I don't really see that yet. And here is Daniel in exile, if you've been here for this series, in Babylon with his people, Israel, longing for the day that God will restore his people and bring them back to the promised land and God's kingdom will come. He's seen kingdoms come and go already. He's been given visions of this by God, the promise that the future kingdoms will come but they'll fall, Uh, they'll be cruel but they'll be brought down again and Babylon falls to the Medes and then the Persians and perhaps he wonders, maybe this is the beginning of the kingdom coming. And he starts praying for it. And he opens his Bible. And if you're you're looking at the reading tonight from Daniel 9, you'll see it's because he's been reading the Bible that he prays this prayer in chapter 9. In the first year of the reign of Darius, a Mede by descent, I understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So he reads the scriptures and he sees this promise that the exile will be 70 years long and then it'll end. And he works out, oh, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40. It's about 70 since we left Jerusalem. 
it's time for God to bring this fulfillment, to bring his promise good and take us home again. And so he prays this prayer, which we'll look at now. And all the way through, this this is the question. Um, How long will it be? When will this be? When will your kingdom come, Lord? And what we'll see in this prayer tonight, there are really kind of three themes about the faith of Daniel, and actually, I think for us all, Christian faith, and how faith approaches this question of praying for God's kingdom to come. Here's the first one, that faith confesses our sin. It's in a number of verses, actually. I'll just put a few up there, verses 5 and 6, and then again verse 10 particularly. Um, But you saw there the strong language Daniel uses of what we call confession, of, you know, in our modern world, we say, you know, fessing up, taking responsibility, doing a U-turn from walking away from God and coming back towards him. So rather than saying, Lord, what are you doing? You are so unjust. You've put us in this miserable land, Babylon. You've put us under the power of foreign rulers. We thought you loved us. We deserve to go home. We deserve to be blessed by you again. Rather than any of that, he simply says, we have sinned. It is our fault, Lord, not your fault. And actually, not even Babylon's fault that we're here It's our fault that we're in a mess. And that's a really good prayer for a Christian or indeed a church to pray. It's our fault we're in a mess. Uh, And to show how serious he is, if you look at verse 5, just in that one verse, he he says it sort of five ways. As if to make sure that he, he misses out no form of sin, of turning away from God, that might actually be part of where they've gone wrong. So he's very thorough. We have sinned, he says. We've missed the targets, the kind of sense of that. Um, We aimed to to love you, but we didn't. We missed the target. We sinned. We've done wrong. That's the sense of crossing over God's boundaries, breaking his rules. We've been wicked. We've rebelled. We've turned away from your commands. He goes on through the prayer, lots of other forms too. We have sinned. He confesses, and that's where it all starts. No attempt to push what's happened under the carpet, or to apportion blame somewhere else. Just taking it all upon ourselves. We have sinned. Great story about a family that went away for a weekend and asked their neighbours just to keep it on the house whilst they were away. And uh, next day, the neighbours were horrified when their dog broke into the next door's garden and came back holding a rather blood-stained rabbit in its mouth. And, of course, they would had a look at it, and the, the poor thing was stone dead. And they thought, what do we do? You know, they've gone away trusting our, the house to us, and, and our dog's gone and killed their rabbit. So you know what they did? They went out to the pet shop, and they found the nearest similar rabbit they could in the pet shop, and they brought it home, and they put it in next door's hutch. And when the family came back from the, the weekend away, and they, they came out and they said, thank you so much for keeping on the house. Very strange things happened, because... When we went away, just the day before, the rabbit died. And uh, you know, we, we buried her in the garden. But when we got home, we found that she'd come alive again and she was sitting in the hutch. Do you know what happened? And so, uh, just a great example is of, of the, the ways, the complex ways we go to cover up sin, to do anything but actually confess it. We'll say, well, it's because of this, and it wasn't really my fault, and so on. We excuse it, we move it elsewhere, 
And Daniel says, no, it's our responsibility. We have sinned. And it's a corporate thing. It's not just I have sinned or my people over there, but not me. But we have sinned. We're in this culture, aren't we, which I think teaches us um, lots of good things about rights, about human rights and so on. That's very important. But at the same time, a lot about my rights, but not my responsibilities. I think one of the ways this comes across is in this area of, of when we do things that are wrong, when we begin to ways of acting that, that damage us or other people and ignore God, um, so easy to, to say, well, I've got a right to do this. And it's not my fault, it's someone else's fault. And actually the Bible's so helpful here because it reminds us actually very deep down so much that's messed up in the world is our responsibility. It's because we've claimed rights but not taken responsibilities. So that's the first thing, um, confessing our sins. I think we'll have a confession later on as a way of doing that as a people together. But let's move on because he doesn't stop there, does he? Very important, doesn't stop there. It's not all gloom. Uh, he goes on secondly, oh. and we see that faith remembers God's nature. Now, the other big theme in this prayer is Daniel's language, not about our sin now, but about God and what God is like. And he says it many different ways. You are righteous, you are merciful, you are faithful. All about God's nature, God's character, you might call it. So if you just look at, again at verse 4, God is great and awesome. Great and awesome. Um, he's loved his people. He's loving. He keeps his covenant of love with all who love him. Um, if you glance down further, verse 7, Lord, you are righteous. That means you know, you, um, you know the right thing to do and you do it. You make good laws and you keep them yourself. Verse 9, God is merciful. Word about God's um, compassionate heart towards the needy, towards his people. Um, he, he sees us in our mess. He forgives us our sins. He puts us right. He provides our needs. He's merciful. He's forgiving. Um, verse 9, again, it's, a, it's a, actually a plural word. It's as if to say God doesn't just forgive us and that's it. But he does it again and again and again, and again. Every time we sin, when we turn back, he is merciful and forgiving, again and again. And this is the heart of the prayer, that Daniel is resting the success of this prayer, not on how hard he prays, or even how hard we repent and turn back to God, how good our confession is, but on God's nature. God is like this, and that's, Lord, why we believe that you will hear us. Now, if you've got a friend who tells you that, that they're going to catch a certain train on a certain day at a certain time, and they're going to meet you at your end at the station when the train gets in at that time on that day, you've probably got friends of two different kinds, haven't you, that tell you that kind of thing. You've got the friends that you know are going to completely blow that. And they're not reliable. They'll get the wrong train, the wrong time. They'll be late. And you'll be waiting for nothing. They won't be there. But other friends who you know are completely reliable, they say, I'll do it that day, that time, I'll see you there, and you can guarantee that they will do that. And Daniel is saying, Lord, we know that you're the second kind of friend to us. When you say, 
that you're righteous, you'll keep your word. When you say you're faithful, you'll be faithful. When you say you'll forgive us, when we turn back to you, you will forgive us. Because you said you're like that and we believe you. It's not that we are good that you forgive us. It's not that we even confess deeply that we, we've sinned. It's that you say you'll forgive us. That's what we believe. That's faith, isn't it? Trusting what God says. So that's the second thing faith does. It's remembering God's nature. Hanging on to the kind of God we believe in. And Daniel knows this God because all of those descriptions of God he's run through tonight, that you love us, that you're merciful, that you forgive us, that you're righteous, they're all straight from the Bible. It's because he spent every day of his time in captivity and before reading the scriptures that he's learned that God is like that. And that's why daily Bible reading, as Carol was saying, is such a powerful way to guide and learn our prayer, but also to strengthen our faith. That's how we learn God's promises, and faith is trusting what God says, his promises. But now his prayer, I think, just surprises us a bit. We expect him to pray, don't we, Lord? We have sinned, but we confess. We've been bad, but you are good and merciful, so please forgive us and restore us. Um, Send your kingdom, as we'd say today in the language of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. But actually, if you look at verse 19, he doesn't quite say that. He says, Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. For your sake, oh my God, hear and act, because we bear your name. Can you see what he's saying there? He's not saying, um, because we've suffered enough, Will you please set us free and take us home and restore your city? Or because we've confessed very deeply now, we think we've kind of done our bit. Now you, you, do, you do your bit and restore us. Or because we've had a hard time, um, we've suffered, it's about time you blessed us now. He puts all the attention, doesn't he, on God. It's for your name, he says, that we want this to happen. In a sense, we don't matter here. It's not because we want an easy life that we want the exile to end, it's because we want you to be honoured. Isn't that fascinating? He's not saying God doesn't care. God is compassionate. God is merciful. But he's saying, what's more important than the end of our suffering is the end of your shame, Lord, that your people let you down, went into exile, and you're a faithful God. And we want the world to see that. You see that? That's what he's saying, isn't it? It's for your name's sake that we ask that you answer our prayer. So isn't that interesting today for us that when we pray for God to forgive us um, individually or his, his people together, when we ask, Lord, restore us, restore your church where we've gone wrong, as Cranmer was praying in the Reformation, as we pray today, we're praying that not simply so that the church will grow or the church will be happy, but actually so that God may be seen to be faithful through his work in the church. That the world around can see that he keeps his promises. And again, as I pray maybe for a non-Christian friend at college or at work, it's right to pray that God will help them to see who he is and reveal himself to them and bring them to faith. 
so that they can know his mercy. But it's actually even more than that, isn't it? It's praying that, God, so that you can be honoured in their life, that, that they can give you the glory due to you. That's why we pray, ultimately, that someone should come to faith, that God should be glorified in the life of someone that at the moment, because they don't know him, is not able to glorify him. So, that's Daniel's prayer. Confessing our sin, but then remembering God's nature so that his nature can be seen, can be glorified. And then this is what Daniel receives by way of an answer. This is the answer God sends. It wasn't read out for us tonight, so we'll have a look at the second half of the uh, passage now from verse 20 onwards. And here's the thing that faith as we pray for God's kingdom to come, as we pray, God, forgive us, restore us for your name's sake, for, because of your nature, God says, I will, but leave the timing to me. Okay, this is really interesting. It's not easy, so kind of open eyes, attention for two minutes here, focus. Um, let's have a look at the second half. Before Daniel finished praying, if you look at verse 21, God sends an angel with a message. And there are Three great promises in what the angel says in verse 24. So I'll just read verse 24. Three great promises here. Um, Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. Now, in those complicated phrases, there are really three things. There's redemption there. Redemption, that is God putting wrongs right, particularly dealing with our sins so that we are forgiven and brought back to him. That's the heart of redemption. God paying the price through Christ's death on the cross for our sins so that through faith we can be his children again, put right with him. Redemption, the big thing. Your city will finish transgression, atoning for wickedness. Redemption. Second one is righteousness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's saying that God's people will be given peace with him in a new world, a restored Jerusalem, a restored people of God, free from sin this time. Righteousness will come. Redemption and righteousness will be the answer to Daniel's prayer. It's great news, isn't it? This is just what he's asking for. God's going to bring them home. God's going to forgive them. God's going to give them righteousness. And then thirdly, rebuilding. It talks about anointing the most holy place and if you're familiar with the Old Testament temple at all, you'll know that in the temple there are a number of courtyards, but within the inner courtyard where only the priests could go, there's this kind of holy room called the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant of God was kept. And God is going to rebuild the temple, he's saying, so that that holy place destroyed by the Babylonians will be restored, another temple will be built, and God symbolically will live among his people there. God's going to rebuild his dwelling among his people. So redemption, righteousness, rebuilding, that's all packed in verse 24. I said it was fast, didn't I? But that's the heart of it. And God is saying in a nutshell, yes, I hear your prayer. In fact, I sent the angel before he'd even finished the prayer because I already know what you're asking and I'll answer it. Your plea for Forgiveness and mercy and righteousness will be answered. But, there's a big but. 
Daniel, do you remember from the beginning of this chapter, had read in Jeremiah, chapter 25, that the exile would last 70 years. The angel says, 70 sevens are decreed for your people. 70 sevens. And as it says in the note there, sevens is it's a kind of a, a symbolic number in, in Daniel, in the Bible. It could mean seven weeks. A seven could be a week, so 70 weeks. It could be 70 years. It could be 70 long periods, 70 periods of 70 years each. It's a long time. And it's as if God is saying, yes, I will do this soon, but I'm not going to tell you exactly when yet. It's rather like when a a child says, you know, is it nearly Christmas? And the parent has to kind of say, well... It will be soon, but it's just not quite yet. And it's it's kind of in God's sovereign vision. It's It's a piece of elastic, isn't it? History. Human history is a piece of elastic in the Bible. And God very rarely gives us exact dates things will happen, but promises that they will happen. And this is one of those examples. Jeremiah's right. God will end the exile. He'll bring his people home. He'll redeem them. He'll rebuild the temple. But when will it be? It's in God's timing. It's not simply 70 calendar years. So if you look now at um, verse 26, you'll, sorry, verse 25, you'll see that God says more there about these weeks. Um, verse 25, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, so that probably is the, the end of the time of Daniel, the end of the time in Babylon, the exile, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So that's, I make it 69 sevens out of 70. My math is not good, but correct me if I'm wrong. And then it says after the 62 sevens, that's the end of that 69 periods of time, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. That's a reference to the Messiah. We would think as Christians of Jesus coming and being killed. But then it continues, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end. Desolations have been decreed. He'll confirm or strengthen a covenant with many for one seven. So here's another seven. This is probably the the 70th seven here, isn't it? 69 and then one. And in the middle of that last seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. That's a reference to the destruction of the new temple. Again, it's going to be destroyed. Sacrifice, Jewish sacrifice in the temple will end again. And there'll be an abomination causing desolation set up in the temple. So poor old Daniel. It's not simply, great, 70 years over, time to go home. It's, yes, God has great purposes to restore you, to redeem you, to bring righteousness. But it's going to take a long time. And even when it initially comes through the Messiah, there's yet more suffering even beyond that. Isn't that extraordinary? We'll look in a second at how, as Christians, we kind of read that in the light of Jesus. Um, But just to kind of be, I hope, clear as to the timing here, we've seen that Daniel's told by the angel there'll be this 70 weeks, a long period of time, over which God will bring about at least some restoration of the kingdom and the temple, but again, during which, towards the end, there'll be further disaster and suffering. 
And it's divided into these 69 weeks, which seems to lead up to the coming of the Messiah, and then another week beyond it, which seems mixed with good news and bad news. So the anointed one will come after 69 weeks, but be killed. And then another ruler, a foreign ruler, will come, destroy the city, and desecrate the temple. A time of short-lived joy, followed by a time of cruel oppression. Now, we won't turn to it now, but in Mark's Gospel in chapter 13, Jesus seems to confirm this outline of events, or regard it as being fulfilled in his own life. So he predicts that his death as the Messiah and his resurrection will be followed later by the um, destruction of Jerusalem and of the Jewish temple, and by that language of the last verse of our chapter, the abomination of desolation being set up in the temple. And it seems as if what Jesus is saying, it's along these lines of this diagram, which is, I showed it last week, um, but I've just added a little bit more color on it this week in the light of Daniel's uh, message tonight. We saw last week that, that the Bible divides time into these sort of really three periods. There's the, the present age before Christ, so the Old Testament period. Then in the middle there, the two ages, the past and the age to come, coexisting, overlapping, the time between the first coming of Christ, that's the cross, and the second coming in the future when he returns and his kingdom is complete. And then the right-hand side, the age to come, that's God's kingdom complete. Jesus reigning over all things, his kingdom visible, perfect, the end of sin, the end of evil, and so on. And we're in that middle block, as I said last week, the two ages existing together, the now of God's kingdom coming, of Christ reigning, but actually also the not yet, that there's so much in the world that's still wrong. And we're waiting for the return of Christ and the fulfillment of his kingdom. And it seems that what Daniel is told is that there'll be this 69 weeks on the left-hand side there, the Old Testament period, particularly between the end of the Old Testament writings, um, the book of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and the coming of Jesus and John the Baptist, when God starts speaking again to his people. That's the sort of 69-week waiting period during which the temple is rebuilt, temporarily at least. And then comes Jesus, the Messiah. He is killed, as it says in our reading, and we enter the 70th week. But this is, it seems, a, um, an elastic week. We don't know how long this week will be. It could be thousands of years. But it's the week that is between the first coming of Christ and his death and the return of Christ in glory. And as we've seen, it includes both a period of Christ's reign, but also a period of um, oppression and of the temple being destroyed. And that seems to have been fulfilled, as Jesus predicted, by the coming of the Romans in AD 70. And they entered Jerusalem, they destroyed the city, they entered the temple, they set up the Roman standard, desecrating the temple with the Roman legions there. So we're in that period, aren't we, of waiting for the second coming. I think it's hard to know for sure, but it seems we're in that 70th week. And the coming of Christ is therefore close at any time, but we wait. God's timing could be in the future and still a long way off. We just don't know. So with that rather complicated ending to this chapter with the 69 weeks and the one week we're in now, what does Daniel say to us tonight? I've put really three things here. 
The first thing is the most important tonight, that we are honest before God that we are sinners, that individually and as God's people, we have turned away from him, and as he said, we've sinned, we've not done what's right, we've acted unjustly, we've rebelled against him, and to come back before him together in confession and ask him to restore us and bring his kingdom. Again, if you're here for the first time tonight, and perhaps you're even looking for Jesus, looking for faith, um, that's the first step back towards God, is to recognize that we've gone away from him. And instead of trying to find excuses, simply to say, Lord, I don't quite know who you are yet, but I want to come home. I want to come back. I need you to help me and forgive me. Secondly, be patient. That's really the big thing in Daniel, that though there are tremendous pictures of the future, of kingdoms rising and falling, of the coming of the Messiah, as we've seen, actually we're not given a date when the kingdom will fully come. We're just told that it will come, that God is faithful, and we're to be patient for that day. This is very hard for us. We're in this this kind of instant culture. Um, We're in this technological culture. We we fix our problems. We, We buy a gadget. We get an app. We spend money on something to fix the problem. And we can't do that with the world because the world's problems of sin and evil and death are too big. And even science can't fix them. Only prayer and patience and faith until Christ brings his kingdom and all is put right. So we're in that now and not yet. We're in today, but we wait for tomorrow. Be patient. And then lastly, God is faithful. Let's remind each other tonight, God is faithful. God does keep these promises. He's not about to stop being righteous or merciful or faithful. So I'm just thinking, maybe just imagine a young couple, maybe um, they fall in love, they marry, they start out on married life, they promise to love each other, don't they, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Um, By the way, those are some of Cranmer's words from the marriage service that he wrote. And they do so knowing that good, I hope knowing, that good and bad times will come, that it won't always be a bed of roses in marriage, but that God is faithful. And that's not a bad picture of all of our Christian lives. We know Christ's love for us utterly faithful, but there will be difficult times because of what life throws at us, because of our faith sometimes being weak. And to know that he will keep his promise, that God is faithful, that as Daniel heard, he sends a saviour who even through his death will transform this world and our lives and bring his never-ending kingdom of righteousness. So the future may not be easy. Our prayers may not be answered today. But which of us, if we are Christians here tonight, would not rejoice to know, to be reminded that God is faithful, God is righteous, God is loving, God is compassionate, God is forgiving, because he is. That's what he tells us. That's what he's demonstrated time and again. And who would not want to shout with every breath or maybe just to quietly tell someone at work or at college this week that we've found that in Christ every promise is fulfilled. Here is someone who keeps his word, who's faithful to me, to us. Both today and tomorrow, when this age ends, when the kingdom is seen in its completeness, the new age of righteousness dawns and God, Christ, is glorified. So let's be still for a few moments. I'm going to leave some quiet now and then Margaret's going to come and lead us in a moment of prayer 
as we follow.